The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. It is my joy to be with you all this morning. Uh, we're, part, we're going through a series this summer in the Proverbs, which I'm sure you've heard. And so that's exactly what we read. Thank you, Sarah, for reading that. Um, so what I would like to do in some brief way is review just a few of these main points. These few of these points that have, we've set in front of us as a way to understand how to read the Proverbs. Now, I need to make a confession this morning. Growing up in the church, being a Christian most of my life, the Proverbs have been a pretty uncomfortable book for me to read. And so it's almost a little intimidating for me to think about, okay, how do, how do we teach this? How do I understand this? And one of the challenges for me personally is that I feel like life is really complex. Do you guys feel like life is really complex? The more and more you get into life, the more decisions you have to make. Right and wrong, it's kind of hard to tell sometimes. Sometimes it's clear. And it's that exact same reason that I think the Proverbs is helpful. Not because Proverbs is saying that everything needs to be a certain way every single time, but there's truth in specific circumstances with specific people. And so I think it helps hold that complexity that I experience in life, and I think we all experience in some way. And so I'm going to keep it to three review points, okay? And I'm going to go pretty quickly because I know with every sermon we get a little bit of this review. The first thing that's really important to think about with Proverbs is what Ed talked about last week. And it's this idea of the two-path theology of Proverbs. There is the way of the wisdom and there's the way of foolishness. And it connects to this idea of the fear of the Lord, that the fear of the Lord is the way in which we truly experience and recover this broken relationship with God. You can find lots of other different manifestations of wisdom in ancient, ancient literature. Egyptians, Babylonians, Assyrians, they all have wisdom literature, which is sometimes really similar to Proverbs. But what is completely different is that the Proverbs lifts up the fear of the Lord, this holy awe and reverence that connects us and draws us to him in a way that nothing else can in the world. Point two, we're dealing with poetry. I am not a poet. I'm not going to even try to pretend that I'm a mastery of poetry. I'm not. Um, but one of the challenges with poetry is you're dealing with different sort of themes, literary sort of structures that is holding the truth. It's holding the idea. And so when you read it, sometimes it might not be exactly clear for you. It's definitely not clear for me. So when we look at that, it causes us to stop. And I would encourage you, if you find something confusing, just stop and think about it. You know, one of the things that's been helpful for me is that this is Jewish meditative literature. What that means is it's, it's an it's a invitation for us to reflect on it, to let it marinate, because we're dealing not just with right and wrong, but these contrasting ideas that lifts up a higher truth. There's almost this intentional ambigu ambiguity in the Proverbs. It's trying to say multiple things at the same time, and if we're not willing to stop, we might miss it. And then the last thing, which I will talk about a little bit later, is that this book, in the history of reception in the church, connects Proverbs with Solomon. Solomon, who sought the Lord and asked for understanding about how he would lead the people, how he would lead this life, how he would make good decisions. And so 
a lot of ways, the church has looked at Solomon as a person of wisdom. And you can see that in the book itself. There are superscriptions that connect Solomon to these works. You know, the past series, we've been going through this section that's one through nine, which are these instructions about the Proverbs. Sometimes it's like a father speaking to a son, but it's actually all preparation. It's all preparation for these wise sayings that go on in the rest of the book, which is where we are today. These wise sayings that as you sit in them and as they've been collected, they're intended for us to look for deeper truth, for how we live our lives. And so what I want to do this morning is just really simple. I encourage you, if you have a Bible, you can just turn it. I'm just going to go verse by verse and just talk about these Proverbs. What are these things saying? How does this relate to what's said in the other places of the book? So if you'd like a Bible, I know there would be someone willing to bring you one if uh, you'd like to read along. But like I said, we're just going to take it verse at a time, not necessarily looking for complete answers of what these verses are saying, but seeking the way of wisdom. So the first verse in 15.24 says, The path of life leads upward for the prudent, that he may turn away from Sheol beneath. And so this picks up on that two-theme thing I was talking about, right? So the two themes, wisdom and foolishness, life, death, righteousness, and wickedness. These are these things that God is offering and calling people, saying, this is the way of life, my way. And the other way leads to death. It's filled with foolishness and wickedness. And this theme's really interesting. I think scripture talks about this in a lot of different ways. It uses a lot of different terms. I only want to use, I wanted to lift up one example, which you can find in Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy 30, 19. It says, This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. Moses is saying this to Israel after they've gone 40 years to the wilderness, after they have gone astray and gone in the desert. And he's saying, choose life. There are a lot of ways that lead to death. There's a lot of ways that lead us going back into the darkness. But he says to choose life. He kind of keeps going in that phrase. Choose life so that you and your children may live, that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. So this is these themes that are holding up. How do we choose life by seeking wisdom in God, which is through seeking right relationship with God. The other word here, when I read this verse, and you might just look at it and see, and I have no, I, prudent is not a word we use today. Prudent, prudence. And I, I, it led me to look in the Hebrew, what is it talking about here? And so the Hebrew root is a word called sakal, which is another word for insight or understanding. As one commentator writes, Sakal recognizes the true nature of the situation and effectively applies this knowledge and understanding. And so it it had me thinking about a couple months back when my two-year-old daughter was given this wonderful gift of a teepee. This wonderful gift of a teepee my parents gave her. And I thought, this will be easy. One, it's going to be really fun. Ruth is going to want to go in the teepee all the time and have fun, which she has. But I I just threw out the instructions completely. And so all we had was these these posts that are supposed to wrap around each other with this fabric. 
and then there's a couple pieces that have no explanation of how yours work. And all of a sudden, 34 minutes later, I'm still looking at this thing. My mom's gotten involved, my wife's involved, and we're staring at this teepee, trying to figure out, how can we get this together? It keeps falling, and then I'm starting to think, this is like going to hurt my daughter because it's going to fall on her. It's not a good situation. I'm like, this is the opposite of prudence. If prudence is insight into a specific situation and how to make sense of it, you've got to read the instructions. <laughs> How the story wraps up is I, find, I go out and find a rope in the garage and tie this umpteenth time just to make sure that it's going to stay there. It's a total dad move. But it's there. I get it up. But it wasn't prudence. I didn't seek out the instruction I needed. And I didn't apply it to the situation of the teepee construction. You know, Thankfully, the teepee is still up, by the way. It's holding fast. But that's prudence that we have a sense of awareness of what's going on in the world, and we apply that understanding. It's not just this intellectual head thing. But no, I know how to live in the world and make sense of it. You know, this word sakal is really interesting because it's also used as a word that's called success. When Joshua is about to lead the people back into the land, and I'm just going to turn there really quick, but when Joshua leads the people back into the land... He says, do not turn from it. This is the law of Moses he's talking about. To the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. That word, good success, that's actually the same word, which is interesting that they translated it that way. But the idea is that you would have success as you apply this awareness of God and the life-giving power and grace you have in him. It says a lot about what we do in everyday life. Let's keep going. So the next verse, 1525, it says, The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. And I think it's interesting that, you know, the proverb has this analogy of a house. The house is a, it, it's a symbol of security, safety. If you have a house, you have a means of survival from the years to come. You can protect your family. You can protect your belongings. If you don't have a house, you don't have that. And it's contrasted with this whole thing of the widow. The widow, which the scripture speaks on the widow. And it talks about in this proverb the idea of the Lord maintaining the widow's boundaries. The boundaries is an, is an analogy, but it's also a literal thing. The boundaries set between a person's property, where their property begins and ends. And if you're a wicked person, you're gonna actually, you can actually shift the boundary markers. You can shift the boundary markers and make it less and less and less. And I think so much of the concern in the Bible for the widow is the fact that we as a society do not protect the people who have no voice for themselves, that don't have power for themselves, and that we in our own way are shifting the boundaries, not protecting them, not maintaining the boundaries for the people who don't have it. The, one of the things that's introduced in this verse is the idea of pride. So this is the house of the proud. And that language of God tearing down the house of the proud, it's also kind of undermining, it's uprooting. It's taking away and bringing about justice. And the implication there is that the pride, pride the prideful, the proud, take advantage of the people who don't have their own power. That take advantage. They have gained this wealth. They've gotten their house at the cost of other people having less. And that's God's just, justice 
for the people who take advantage of others. Verse 26. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, for gracious words are pure. Abomination is not a word we use every day. Um, it's an interesting word in Scripture. It has a couple different senses. In one sense, it describes something that is disgusting to God. I.e., newsflash, there are things that God hates in our world and in our life. It also has a ritualistic sense that it would kind of be used in God's response to when the Israelites worship idols. Or perhaps if you and I find ourselves worshiping idols as gods. So abomination, it's really strong language. Um, the other thing too, so you have the thoughts of the wicked, so the things that the wicked reflect on, and then you have the gracious words which God considers pure. In the Old Testament, it's in Hebrew, right? But early on, there was a translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And when they interpreted that or translated that, they actually used the word pleasing. Now, one of the reasons I care about that is because that gets me closer to the beginning of how people who were first century Jews understood Proverbs. So I care about learning more and more about, okay, what did they, how did they understand this word of purity? So that purity holds up the idea of you know, contrasting the abomination thing. But it also gets at what's pleasing to God. That wisdom is something that pleases God, that draws us into his life-giving sort of presence and activity in the world. And I definitely want to know what, how I can live my life that's pleasing to him. You know, there's lots of ways we could test that. One of the things I, think I find helpful is something Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. Like Paul comes to the Thessalonian church and he says, you know, we come to you not because we seek to approve men, but to please God who tests our hearts. We really won't know what is pleasing to God if we're not open to being tested. Just like we are this morning, open to being tested, to hearing a word of the Lord and asking, am I really doing this the right way? Or is there a better way? The next verse, I'm in verse 27 now, says, whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his household, but he who hates bribes will live. So this gets at this theme that you see building in this collection of Proverbs, right? This theme of the have-nots and those who have little, the proud and the humble. And here we have greed. Greed which comes and affects what others have, and it affects the whole. I think that's something that the, the Old Testament is really strong with, is this idea that, no, like what I do in my life doesn't just affect me individually. It affects everyone around me. You know, my family, we've been a part of this church for almost five years. So what happens to our life affects you guys. Like this is this connected thing that happens as we live into this world. Um, so that the fact if you know, if I become greedy, it brings upon a negative impact on my whole household and my friends, my community. But then he says this in the second part of that. But he who hates bribes will live. And if you look up the word bribes, it's actually a word for gifts. So it's interesting that the gifts that we might give could be blind to the justice we want to see in the world. Blind to what we want to see for our neighbor, to our friend, or even to our enemy. So it's just adding this complexity to simple things like, oh, I know bribes are wrong, but what do I give that harms other people? 
It's not easy to see. Next verse, 1528. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. And I think this is definitely something I wanted to embody coming in this morning because I've sat with these 10 Proverbs, these 10 verses, and I know that in every way I don't have the answers for what they're really saying. I know that God's given me He's given us all a way to live into relationship with him. But it means that we do need to think about these things. We do need to meditate and ponder what is the right course of action. And what's going on with our hearts? It uses that language of hearts. The heart at the center of the will, the center from which we make every decision, the center which we love the people in our lives. And so what's in our hearts comes out and what we say, the things that we share. So then that's contrasted in this, this, this proverb with the mouth of the wicked. That the foolish and the wicked, they don't hesitate, but it just comes out. And what, the, what is in their thoughts, what is in their hearts, brings about evil things for themselves and others. 29th verse. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. And this gets at the premise that God brings salvation and rescue to those who follow him, to those who pray, those who want to seek to be near to the Lord. Which, I don't know if you would feel this way in your life, but that's not something that just happens. That's something you have to seek the Lord. If you want to be in the presence of the Lord and the nearest of the Lord, that takes some deep searching. (laughs) Because there are many things in in, in this world that will offer you a way, and a much easier one. But what is the way that ultimately connects you with God? It talks about how God is near the prayers of the righteous. The righteous are those that actually attempt to reflect the character of God in their lives. It's not that we're righteous in and of ourselves, but we're given the gift of righteousness through what Christ does for us. So from beginning to end, we're changing, we're different, and we're embracing new things. Righteousness, not for our sake but for what Christ has done. And it has a lot of impact on us. I think the rest of this section talks about the impact, this life-giving impact that happens when we embrace this way of wisdom. The verse 30 talks about it. So It says, The light of the eyes rejoices the heart. The good news, and good news refreshes the bones. So again, this is poetic language, right? But it's using senses, right? So we have the seeing... The light of the eyes, that's another way of saying bright eyes. And then you have hearing. Hearing. And what we hear and what we see, it brings wholesomeness to us. It brings joy. Have you ever been around someone that just has this positive spirit overflowing out of them? You might not even need to know their testimony. You might not need to know how they're doing in their walk. But you just see their love of Jesus just by the way they love people in their lives. I think that's what it's getting at with these bright eyes. The impact of our walk with God changes us. And that language, good news refreshes the bones, you might have a note in your Bible. It actually says, makes fat. It's getting at this nourishing, life-giving thing, life-giving thing that's happening just by the fact that we draw near to God and he draws near to us. 
So we're going to keep going. We have a few more verses, and then we're going to have some sort of reflective thoughts about this whole thing. Are you with me? All right. All right, so verse 31. The ear that listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Now, you can look at some other verses that aren't in this, prover- this section of Proverbs, like Proverbs 9, and it actually will talk about how the wicked and the proud respond to reproof. It says they hate it. You know, if, you, if you try to correct someone who's foolish and wicked, they'll hate you and turn away. Like, they don't receive it well. They don't receive that type of correction well. But the wise embrace it. The wise listen. And that's what this proverb is talking about. That those who listen are willing to listen are embracing a deeper level of wisdom and transformation for their lives. They're being open to it. Sometimes why, you know, whenever you hear a preacher come up to share a text, there's always this prayer which is talked about so much in the Bible that we would just have ears to listen that we would be open and willing to hear a word of the Lord, which is definitely our prayer this morning. And you know, part of it is connected to the idea that the wise, the people that are truly wise, and maybe you can think of people in your lives, it's like, you know, this, this is a really wise person. I really respect the way this person goes through life, and they, they really reflect God by what they do. But the wise admit to mistakes. They change their behaviors They respond to correction because all those things are opportunities to enhance their lives, to enhance what they can do for others, to enhance how they are in the world. And all that just comes about just by a willingness to listen. Um, The theme of listening continues in the next proverb. You look at 32 and it says, whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. And it's just continuing this idea And to be honest, we're probably far more prone to ignore the advice we get than the people we should listen to. Because it's painful, it's hurtful to hear, oh, you don't think I'm doing a good job? Or you didn't like how I said that one thing? You know, we're we're cut off. And we, we do everything we can to not hear the harsh word. To do everything we can to not hear the challenging word. Because that might feel, and I'll say this personally for me, that that's felt like rejection that you reject me because you didn't like the one thing I did, even if that's not meant by the other person. And so in my own life, I've actually closed myself off to life-giving reproof because I wasn't willing to listen. Just to wrap up the section, these ten Proverbs that we're reflecting on this morning, look at verse 33. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. And this really is a summative verse for this collection of sayings in the Proverbs. That word instruction really is getting at this idea of discipline. Discipline, correction, kind of like what a, the type of correction a child might get from a parent. You can see in Jeremiah 7, one of the ways this word is used, it says, And you shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of their God, and did not accept discipline. It is a guidance and discipline correcting force. And then it's held up with this thing of humility, which if I looked at this whole passage and I thought about what is the main theme in this section of Proverbs, it's humility. 
It's pride and humility, how I experience that in every way in my life and how in every way that separates me from God if, not, if I'm not willing to listen and learn. So to look at, look, to looking at these Proverbs, I want to use the rest of our time just to do a few things, but the main thing is this, to ask how we more fully embrace humble wisdom in our lives. How does the words of truth and grace that we receive in Scripture, how do they... How do they Meet me in my pride. And am I willing to listen? You know, there's a couple things that happen when we're reading Scripture. Scripture fundamentally gives us the actual words of God, so we're receiving words that he's spoken to us. Scripture says things about God, ways in which he has interacted in the world, and ways in which he invites us to live in response to him. And then it reveals things about us the depths of our pride, the depths of our brokenness and sin, and how that not only brings harm to me, but it brings harm to the people around me in my community. If you look in the next chapter, you might see a familiar verse in Proverbs, in Proverbs 16, um, 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit, which is another word for lofty, arrogant, a haughty spirit, haughty spirit before a fall. You know, it's, it reveals that we have a great need of wisdom in our life if we are going to seek this path that God's laid before us. John Flavel, which is an English pastor, um, he's a Puritan, he has this quote, which I thought was really helpful. They know God will be humble. They, sorry, let me start that again. They that know God will be humble. They that know themselves cannot be proud. They that know God will be humble. They that know themselves cannot be proud. If you really truly know yourself, there's a lot that we can be humble about. Similar to what I've been saying in the sense that we don't have answers for everything we read in this book. We don't have answers for everything in life. And really the only answers we have are pointers. Pointers to the life-giving relationship and grace we find in Christ. And as you meet the complexity of the world, we are going to be at a loss if we think we have it all figured out. Towards the end of Proverbs, there's one proverb that sticks out to me that speaks to this. And it says, Do you see the man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for that man. The people that they think have it figured out there's more hope for fools than for them. That we have a lot to learn. You know, talking about humility is a challenge in some ways, but there's an active and passive part of it. The passive part of it is the fact that things just happen to us. Have you ever been humbled in your life by things that you're happened? You lose your job. You, you get five years into your career, and it's just not what you thought it was. Your family doesn't look like it would. Or in my case, my kids were sick this past week, and I'm just watching my daughter be completely humbled because she can't do anything. You know, we get humbled by certain things. That's more of a passive thing, things that happen to us. The active part of it is how do I actually seek and embrace a life of humility? How do I choose between the things that the world is giving me and choose the path of wisdom, to choose the path of humility? That's a much more active way of talking about it. 
Because as we choose humility, we're seeking to be in relationship with God. And that's a healthy fear with him. Humility gives us caution about our abilities, our limits, the things that we can't really control. But it also draws us to trust God completely with everything of who we are. We look at this section in Proverbs 15, and I think that the main way that Proverbs is talking about humility is through this lens of openness towards wisdom and instruction. Do I really want to listen to the people in my life about me? Can I hear those harsh words? Can I hear good words? Can I hear constructive words? Because I need the people that are around me to look into my life because they're going to see things I don't see in myself. You know, left on my own, I will seek my own self-glory. I will seek my own pleasure. I will seek the things that is easiest for me. And I'll also hide. I can hide pretty well. We do both those things, I think. We seek our own pleasure and glory, and we also hide. I grew up in a ministry family. My parents were missionaries, and maybe some of you guys have had experience like that, or maybe you know people like that. But when you're so immersed into ministry, there is such a focus on the other, how you're trying to reach out, care for people that you feel God's called you to. And in a family, you know, I have one sister, and so we're along for the ride on that. And I always felt this pressure, whether it was intended or not, that I would have it together. I didn't want to show I had any issues and problems, and so I would just act as if I got it. You know, and that can get you pretty far, but it's taxing. And it's not true. It's not genuine and humble. It's actually an expression of pride. This whole idea, it's like, no, I don't need all those things that I am actually preaching that other people need. No, I, I, I need those things. I need the help of others. I actually need people to see my flaws. I need people to see what I'm not good at. Because it's through those experiences that I can grow from it. You know, we do a lot, and I don't think it's intentional, but we do a lot to kind of hide our need of support, constructive challenge. And some of it is because just to say, you know, I, just to say, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what I think about what you did there. What do you think about that? It feels so intense. Maybe you get really anxious just thinking about saying something like that to a friend of yours. And it's not that we just do this with anyone. We do this with our most trusted people in our life. But it takes being open. Can I go to the people I trust most and say, I want to be completely honest with you, and I want you to be the type of person in my life that if you feel like I need to do something, that you'll speak it, that you'll set me on the path of wisdom because I don't necessarily know it. Can you ask someone to do that? Do we have many people in your lives that you've done that with. I, I, don't, I can count a handful, but those handful of the people are the people I treasure most. I think that's the path of humility, finding a way to be really open to hearing the words of, of support that we find with each other. You know, the biggest irony, and I mentioned Solomon, is his connection to wisdom. Because, you know, Solomon sought understanding from God, right? If you remember his story in 
all of a sudden, he's building the temple. He's leading the people, and he has all these blessings. He's have so much things, and all the nations around Israel are gathering together, coming actually to learn wisdom from Solomon. But then he gains all these things. And it just, you read 1 Kings, and it, it just feels like such a tragedy for someone who rises so high. He falls so low. His heart turns away from the Lord. He takes many wives and starts worshiping other gods and erecting other temples. And so the person who modeled so much wisdom for the people of God at that time never looked at his pride. Just like we can never look at our pride. It's the irony for me to see that. The way wisdom's talked about in Proverbs is it's personified. It's a person. A person living and being in the world. And one of the most beautiful things you see in Scripture is that we see wisdom embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. That he comes, and the way he comes perfectly models this humility I've been talking about this morning. And then he meets us where we are, and he says some of the same language. He picks on the same language of the life and death, two paths that are before us. He uses different words. So I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except me. Elsewhere in Matthew, he says, Enter my narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. But those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. That's our pursuit. Jesus is speaking these words, inviting the same thing that was in the Proverbs. You also look and see in Jesus this developing kingdom ethic, is what I wanted to call it. This kingdom ethic of the world and the way it views success completely reversed and turned on its head. The last will be first, and the first will be last. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Christ in every way embodied wisdom for us, that it would draw us out of this just meditative state of reflection into an active way of life. And there's three themes that I wanted to reflect on as we move towards closing. Um, And it's that wisdom, humble wisdom, that is, that Christ embodied. Humble wisdom sees success through the lens of the kingdom, not as the world sees it. And this means all these types of things for us. But it gets at what I talked about with prudent. That can we affect the world to bring about grace and truth and love in the same way that Christ does as he meets people in his journey to the cross. In the same way that the church has, as it's been filled by the power of the Spirit to bring healing and hope to a world that's in darkness. Part of that is how we engage success, which is very different than the world. And that is seeing that the humble way is to deny myself. The humble way is to say, it's not about what I want, but how can I serve and love you? We bring that into our jobs. We bring that into conversations about finances. We bring that into this basic control, uh, desire to control the world around us. Can I be humble and let go? Can I allow God to meet me where I am and trust him that he really is going to care for me and bring about good in a world 
that I live in. We need those bright eyes, those bright eyes of hope that sees the kingdom each day of our lives, that sees the kingdom breaking in, bringing change and transformation. Second theme, humble wisdom seeks to practice community, community as the body of Christ. You know, one of my favorite proverbs growing up was always what you find towards the end of the book, which is iron sharpens iron. And that's a little bit what I was getting at with how do we be really open to listen to one another. Are we willing to sharpen each other, strengthen each other, lift each other up, carry each other's burdens? You know, it doesn't come from a place of thinking anyone is higher or lower than the other, but how do we show love and truth at the same time? Last theme, so wisdom, humble wisdom, sees success through the lens of the kingdom. Humble wisdom seeks community as the body of Christ. And humble wisdom embraces meekness. Embraces meekness through the might of our king. Through Christ, we can overcome the world through humility. Just like Jesus did and. You know, Paul will talk about this as the foolishness of the cross. What people think is ridiculous, the fact that a Savior King would come and die, is what is our victory. It is what, it's our peace. And that is a humble way of overcoming. It is a humble way that also overcomes our pride. That it's not about conquering over the other, but about saying that God is enough for me and I can trust him, and I can learn. One of the most uh, dramatic places in this for me is in Philippians 2, which I'm sure you'll recognize it, but it really connects with what is happening with Christ in humility as it engages with our pride. It's in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account quality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. God came to us in humility. So how can we come to him in the same way? You hear those words fall upon you, and there is this call to humble sacrifice that is uncomfortable. To embrace humility in a world where people are just trying to grab a hold of power from themselves is scary. But this is the way of hope, and this is the way of life. If I could emphasize anything for you this morning... It's how this section began, that the path of life is for those who embrace this kind of wisdom. This path of life is far better than this other world of pride, of foolishness. This path of life brings true wholeness, strength, nourishment, forgiveness, and healing. But can we embrace that call together? It's not something you... I, do by myself. I do this with many others. 
Do we hear these Proverbs? Do we read Scripture? And do we see it as an opportunity? It's a humble access. That's the word I just found myself using this week. Humble access to the life-giving grace of God. It's not anything we deserve. And yet by his mercy, we can hear him gently saying to us, come, choose life in me. For it is far greater than anything the world has to offer. I will keep the boundaries of the powerless. I will test your hearts so that your words might be pure and pleasing. Love what I love. Seek justice for others. Meditate on my ways day and night. As you pray, I will hear you. As you look for me, I will nourish you. Listen for the correction. Don't ignore it. And the wisdom of life will bring you discipline. The wisdom of life will draw you to me. Amen.